Well, it's depending on what you're reading or seeing on television, it's pretty uh, safe to say that there's going to be different challenges or uh, maybe a journey of suffering down the road. Uh, some say this could go on for four weeks, four months. Um, some wonder if uh, this will go all the way through the next year's flu season. And so the road in front of us could have uh, great financial difficulty, um, family struggles, losses of jobs. People are going to get sick. People are sick. People will die. And so I wonder how we're going to face this road of suffering. And uh, we have some instruction in the Gospel of Mark chapter 10 on what it looks like to face suffering, uh, a road that could be challenging. And there's different ways to face it, and we're going to look at that in just a moment. Let me pray. Lord, would you minister to us through your word and pray that it would encourage people uh, kind of wherever they are with the Lord today, whatever struggle they're facing, whatever suffering they're going through. We pray that you would be honored and that you uh, would be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read a beginning portion of Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32, and then make some reflections. I'm reading from the New International Version. Mark chapter 10, verse 32 begins this way. They, that is the disciples and Jesus, were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. And again, he took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise." Then James and John, two disciples of Jesus, the sons of Zebedee, they came to Jesus and they said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. And they replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't Know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? That's God's word. Uh, my second son, Caleb, has been participating in wrestling the last couple years. And at the end of these wrestling tournaments, kids stand on these staggered podiums. At the top, in first place, the young man will usually get either a trophy or a medal, or often he gets to have the bracket from the tournament showing that he was victorious. And then a little lower than first place is the second place finisher. A little lower than that is the third place finisher. Sometimes these staggered platforms have a fourth place position, or they just put the fourth place position on the floor. 
The message is that glory is found at the top. And I would say that that's a principle that gets burned into the hearts of young children that moves on into adulthood. Glory is to be found at the top. We want to be first chair in band, first place in track. We want to be the lead seller each quarter. We want to get the biggest promotion, the biggest pay raise, have the biggest home on the block, and the biggest bank account among our immediate family. And why? Because glory is to be found at the top. We want to do something big, be something big, because the bigger the victory, the bigger the person. And glory is to be found at the top. But what happens to the rest of us? If only one person's at the top, there's a lot of people on the floor. We're on the floor because we're not pretty enough. That's smart enough. We're not fast enough. We don't have the most money or the biggest house or a house at all or a car. Our bodies don't look the right way. Our brains don't function the right way. Don't have a head for business. And so we're, we're all on the floor. That's where we are. But then you think about we know so many people who have made it to the top, and being at the top doesn't seem to be all that it's cracked up to be. Why do people at the top with fame and fortune overdose on drugs or take their own lives? I was reading recently about Ben Affleck's uh, fight with alcoholism. He married one of America's heartthrobs, one most honors an actor can get, and yet being at the top hasn't been all that glorious after all. Divorce, addiction, anxiety, sorrow. And so maybe shooting for the top actually is just a road to more trouble. Or maybe that's actually just what losers think. <laughs> losers. This kind of, oh, glory at the top, don't do that. And so there's this, we have this uh, juxtaposition, like being, going for the glory at the top doesn't seem to be that happy or fulfilling. Being at the bottom doesn't seem to work. And so am I really supposed to go after last place? Am I supposed to go for first place? In the, and when we're in this road of suffering, when we're, we're going through difficulties, is there any teaching? Is there anything that's going to work? And that, my friends, is why the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the most significant event in human history. Here was the hero who didn't seek glory at the top, but at the bottom. Here is a king that serves, a friend that dies for friends, royalty who puts on rags, a Messiah who washes feet. But when he dies, he doesn't stay dead. Jesus' resurrection was a vindication that this life is truly glorious. This is the life that cannot end. But, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's look at what's going on here in this passage that points forward to what's going to happen at the cross and the resurrection. We might look at this first section and uh, call it seeking glory without knowledge. Seeking glory without knowledge. In this first section, we see that Jesus knows his mission, but James and John, they don't have a clue. Jesus is committed to do whatever the heavenly Father asks of him, 
James and John want Jesus to do for them whatever they ask. Look at Jesus in verse 32. He is leading a convoy up to Jerusalem. This is around 33 AD. And he's leading his disciples in a crowd toward Jerusalem. Now by now, the crowds assume and the disciples know that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah and King. And so what they're expecting on this convoy or at the end of this trip at Jerusalem is there is going to be a major face-off between the powers in Jerusalem and Jesus. Think, think of the Lion King. Right? The true king, Simba, is on his way back to Pride Land to face Uncle Scar. The true king is on his way to face the imposters. Up to this point, we've seen Jesus heal. They've seen Jesus still storms. They've seen Jesus feed thousands. And they, so the, what they're expecting is an epic showdown between Jesus and false powers. Those of you who know the Old Testament, they're expecting someone like Moses showing up to the Pharaoh of Egypt and saying, let my people go, and backing up what kind of power this person has with miracles and plagues and bringing down the Roman Empire and all false imposters. That's what they're expecting. And that's why it says back in verse 32, some people are astonished and those who are following are a little bit afraid. And Jesus is out front. But Jesus clarifies what his mission is going to be. In fact, this is the third time in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus clarifies what is really going to happen in Jerusalem. Why did this Messiah, Jesus, really come to earth? And he says in verse 33, we are going to Jerusalem. And he says, the Son of Man, that's him, is going to be delivered to chief priests, to teachers of the law. He's going to be condemned He's going to be handed over to powers. He's going to be mocked, spit on, flogged, and killed. Jesus knows his mission, and he presses on. Suffering is in front of him. Rejection looms. Death is coming. Jesus proceeds. doesn't just proceeds. He leads the convoy. This is where we're going. He knows that after three days, there's going to be vindication. There's going to be a resurrection. He's, he's not going to stay dead, but he knows that his mission is a mission of suffering and rejection and death. Jesus knows his mission. The John and James, they don't have a clue. (laughs) Jesus is speaking more about death and rejection, and James and John, they're like seeing stars. They see glory. maybe, Maybe they thought Jesus was using those rejection and suffering terms as like metaphors. But they hear rise. They've heard Messiah. And so they come up to Jesus and they ask a question. (laughs) Kind of a shocking question in light of what Jesus said is going to happen in Jerusalem. Yet, James and John still come up with this question. It's there in verse uh, 37. Here's the question they want to ask. Jesus, can one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory? Like they... They hear Messiah, they hear king, they're assuming he's going to sit on a throne, he's going to rule, and they want to be, you know, the prime minister and the chief of staff. They want to 
be at the right and the left. Now, have you ever seen this at work? Where a friend of the boss goes behind fellow employees because of the new job opening or the promotion? If you read a little bit ahead in verse 41, it says the other disciples are uh, ticked off that these uh, other disciples, James and John, have gone behind their back to ask for a spot in the future glory of Jesus. My, my, I'm wondering, too, do, do, do James and John at this moment have any concern for Jesus at all? Or is it all about themselves? Are they scheming just for their own glory and kind of forgetting Jesus entirely? Uh, they make me think of like the senators and representatives that come out early in favor of a certain presidential candidate, just hoping that gives them the leg up when the new president selects her cabinet. The campaign, campaign team is doing all the work, but if they can exploit an opportunity for their own advantage, who's the wiser? I want us to notice a couple of things. First, it doesn't seem that Jesus is opposed to James and John wanting to sit in glory, but he's concerned that they don't know how such glory is bestowed. Notice in verse 38, Jesus responds, right? Right after James and John say, we want, to, we want glory, we want to be at your right at your left. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Oh, we can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left, it's not for me to grant, These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Jesus is saying, oh, Jimmy, Johnny, to want to have the highest places in glory, that's good. But know what it's going to take. Jesus speaks about a cup and about a baptism. And these terms refer to a baptism of misery and a cup of suffering, that those who will sit in glory are those who have faced the most horrific sorrows. Jesus is ready to face that. Jesus knows his mission, but James and John, they don't have a clue. One day, someone will sit in those close seats next to Jesus. Seats of great glory beside an even more glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus. Such ones will be glorious, vindicated. They will be honored. But their road will be like Jesus' road. Sacrifice, suffering, pain, rejection, service, death. These places, Jesus said, belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Most likely, we can't foresee who these people who will sit next to Jesus will be. We, we don't have a clue. It, it could be um, a Chinese woman who maybe over the last few months has cared for someone who's been dying of the coronavirus. Maybe she's a part of the underground church in China, continuing to worship the Lord ministering to those dying in her neighborhood, in her village. She herself contracting the illness, dying alone. Maybe that's 
the one who will be at Jesus' right or left. Maybe it's an African boy who's been raped and pillaged by the vile Lord's resistance army in the Sudan, who torture children and play with their mind and force them into submission. And maybe, maybe one of these African boys puts his faith in Jesus later in life, knows what forgiveness looks like, knows what it means to forgive, and he goes to be a minister back with the Lord's resistance army and loses his life for the sake of Jesus. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Jesus knows his mission. James and John don't have a clue. What about us? Are we seeking glory the right way? Are we ready to sacrifice and serve at the risk of our own lives and health? Are we so focused on not getting sick that we're not prepared to serve the sick? Are we ready to die? Jesus moves on and gives further instruction. Right? In section 1, James and John, they're seeking glory without knowledge. But now Jesus wants to give us knowledge about true glory. Verse 40, 41 says, When the, the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Jesus is saying his true glory is not about gaining power and exploiting others. Notice a few times in verse um, uh, 42, it's about being over someone. You want to be Lord over them, have authority over. It's about being on the top. It's about being in a high place. It's about being first. That's what the world thinks. That's where glory is. That's the glory that you want. And Jesus says it's not about being over people. It's not about being at the highest place. It's actually about taking the low place, last place, being okay with being little. True glory is not about being the boss with servants. True glory is giving up power and serving others. True glory involves laying down titles and picking up towels to serve as slaves. Don't forget it was Jesus who laid a wrap a towel around his waist in order to wash his disciples' feet. Such service unto the Lord will lead to true glory. Interesting story. Back in the 17th century, there was a famous preacher by the name of George Whitfield. And one of his close uh, followers came up to him one day and asked Pastor George Whitfield, do you think we shall see John Wesley in heaven? Now, George Whitfield uh, and the person who questioned him were committed Calvinists, a certain theological group in their theology. And John Wesley had actually publicly exposed Calvinism and had even publicly exposed uh, George Whitfield as someone you shouldn't trust. And so the follower of Whitfield was expecting uh, Whitfield to say, Of course, we won't see Wesley in heaven. 
you know, certainly such a one who would stand opposed to us doesn't have any hope. And so Whitfield paused for a moment and he replied to the question on seeing John Wesley in heaven with this. I fear not. No, he will be so near the throne and we at such a distance that we shall hardly get a sight at him. See, Whitfield knew the thousands of miles that John Wesley had traveled to take the, the gospel all across England. Whitfield knew about the poor that John Wesley had fed, the sacrifices made, and the scorn that John Wesley endured. And Whitfield knew that that was the path to true glory. A couple of weeks ago, I referenced an article in Esquire that featured the famous children's television star, Mr. Fred Rogers. And the writer, Tom Junod, writes this. On December 1st, 1997, a boy, no longer little, told his friends to watch out, that he was going to do something really big the next day at school. And the next day at school, he took his gun and his ammo and his earplugs and shot eight classmates who had clustered for a prayer meeting. Three died, and they were still children, almost. The shootings took place in West Paducah, Kentucky, and when Mr. Rogers heard about them, he said, listen to this, Oh, wouldn't the world be a different place if he had said, I'm going to do something really little tomorrow. I'm going to do something really little tomorrow. I think that's the ethic, the virtue that Jesus is teaching here in Mark 10. Let's do something little tomorrow. Let's not try to make a big splash in public Let's not go do some good deed and post it on Facebook for people to say, wow, what a great person. Rather, let's do things that are small and necessary. Some might even think it's insignificant. Do the kinds of things that don't bring fame or notoriety, but something small that honors Jesus and serves a human being. Something little that will be forgotten by everyone except your heavenly Father. Oh, wouldn't the world be a different place if he had said, I'm going to do something really little tomorrow. Just this morning I was reading in my Bible and I came across a verse that's always been there, but I maybe have missed it. 1 Corinthians 10.24. Let me just read it to you. 1 Corinthians 10.24. The Apostle Paul says, No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And then at the end of the chapter, chapter 10, verse 33, he says, For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Can I talk to the, the, the 11-year-olds? 
that are watching this, listening to this? What's a little thing you can do tomorrow for others? Something little. What does it look like tomorrow? Maybe, maybe it's say, instead of saying, I'm bored, maybe you think of uh, a way to serve your mom or dad or serve the person, your, 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 your daycare provider tomorrow. Something little to help someone. Something little for your sibling. What does it look to, to not want power and authority over others, but to serve and be ready to give your life away? Jesus says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Jesus wants us to be great. He wants our lives to matter. And he says, whoever wants to be first actually must be a slave of all. Wives, is there something little you can do for your husband tomorrow? Husbands, is there something little that you can do for your wife tomorrow? Maybe you're a teenager or a college student. What's something little you can do? Do a video chat with a lonely friend. Knock on the front door, take three steps back, and ask if there's something your neighbor needs from the store. What's something little that we could do? Some people might be asking, though, well, how small? How low should I be willing to go? Am I really supposed to let people treat me like a doormat? Am I supposed to risk my health or even my life? And I believe verse 45 details how low we should be willing to go. Jesus says this, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This verse is so loaded with theology, it's overflowing like a volcano. First off, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man. That is a term that goes all the way back to the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 7, where the Son of Man refers to a glorious being worthy of the same glory and honor as God himself. But then what Jesus does is he ties this glorious being in Daniel 7 to another person foretold in the scriptures, recorded in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, a suffering servant. A servant who comes to bear the iniquity of others. It says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid our sin on Jesus. A famous Anglican pastor named John Stott once wrote, For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. No rabbi or scholar before Jesus had tied the glorious being in Daniel 7 with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. No one. Why? Because the world could never conceive of a lion-like king dying like a lamb-like sacrifice. No one could perceive a royal king serving in the rags of a slave. But that's who Jesus is. That's what he has done and how he wants his people to be. And then the question is then, well, is it worth it? Why would we choose 
to be spent on behalf of others? Why die to ourselves and make ourselves a slave? And the answer goes all the way back to what Jesus was describing is going to happen in Jerusalem. In those verses 32 and 34, the Son of Man's going to be condemned. He's going to be handed over. He's going to be mocked, spit on, flogged, killed. But those last few words are so significant. Three days later, he will rise. You could say that until the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus was all talk. He was making all kinds of claims. It's the resurrection of Jesus that says his claims are valid. His talk is proven truth. His ideas are vindicated as the path to greatness and glory. On a Friday, 2,000 years ago, Jesus died for our sins. He paid for the sin. But it's on Resurrection Sunday that all this is confirmed. It says that Jesus' payment was full and sufficient. Now anyone who comes to Jesus can be freed from their sin and their guilt. They can be set free. Jesus suffered and served so that we could be free. Because we've been selfish. We've been glory seekers. And we deserve punishment for that selfishness, that desire to be God and Lord over others. But Jesus died in our place. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He bought us. And the good news of Christianity is that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. I wonder if you have repented of your sin, of being like James and John, wanting your own glory, wanting to be first, wanting to have power over others. Have you repented of that and realized that that's the way to death, condemnation? This is, that, that is so evil and so heinous, it took the death of the innocent Son of God to make things right. Have you confessed that your pursuit of personal greatness is evil? Have you repented of your self-promotion? Jesus died for your sins. Bring your sins to him. And then I just pray that we would rethink greatness. That we'd want to be great in the great way that Jesus has modeled and demonstrated and by his resurrection has vindicated as the only way. Let us go low. Let's do little things. Let's take last place. Those who die with Christ will rise with Christ. Those who will make themselves last, Christ will make first. Jesus' resurrection has guaranteed this so that even if we die, even if you die serving someone sick throughout this virus, even if you give all that you possess, all things will be made right in the world to come. Because Jesus resurrected. He did not stay dead. So our hope is not in this world, it's in the Christ who faced death in this world and rose again. Our hope is in Jesus. I pray that we would trust him for our forgiveness and for our freedom, and then we would go serve like him. Let us be last. Let us go low. Let us do little things. I'm going to pray. Even now, I pray that you would think of one or two things, little things, you could do this week. Father, thank you for the chance to look at your word this morning. We pray, God, that this would build us up, that in the midst of troubled times and a road marked with suffering, we would embrace the path that Jesus has set, the true path to greatness and glory. 
But also let us not forget that our hope is ultimately in Jesus Christ who substituted himself for us. The essence of sin is us trying to be God. And the essence of salvation is God willing to become like us for our sins. So we praise Jesus. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for life. Pray that now by the Holy Spirit we would honor Jesus by living like him. In Jesus' name, amen.